0: The movie morgue podcast is supported by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you want to learn how to support our show, please go to patreon.com slash doc md during this week's episode on Tokyo Godfathers. the content of our discussion revolves around the way this film portrays homelessness, parental abuse, and gender nonconforming individuals. Now we do our best to engage with difficult material thoughtfully and empathetically. But we also acknowledge that for some of our listeners, this just might not be for you. And that's okay. Please feel free to skip this episode if you so choose. We'll catch you next week.
1: Ladies and gentlemen and all sweet little angel babies, welcome to The Movie Morgue, your movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery.
0: And I'm your co-host, Annie Neller.
1: And today, we're going to be diving into Satoshi Khan 2003 Christmas miracle, Tokyo Godfathers. So, what is Tokyo Godfathers? Annie, had you ever heard of this film before?
0: No, I hadn't. But when I saw the cover of it, I was like, okay, this might be another version of three men and a baby. And I was pleasantly surprised that it kind of wasn't.
1: Cool. So this one came up to me because um, December, those sneaky, sneaky Hollywood executives are sneaking all their movies out for the big Christmas holiday season. So we've got a couple films we want to cover and not really the room, I think, or really the patience to cover a lot of Christmas movies. So we originally looking at that Kurt Russell hot Santa thing and we're just like, nah. So this is a perfect opportunity to cover a Christmas movie from one of my all-time favorite directors, the late and great Satoshi Kong. Uh, he's known primarily for his four feature films and the TV series Paranoia Agent. Uh, so, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, Perfect Blue, and Paprika. All fantastic films. And I had not actually seen this film yet, but I had heard the synopsis and... Literally, three of his four uh, films I had seen and loved to death. And so... I needed to see this, and this was the perfect excuse. So, yeah, that's my context for it. Um, I okay. first saw Perfect Blue in, like, Anime Club in, like, 2009 or something, and yep. I've caught the rest of his works over time, and I'm actually kind of disappointed in myself that it took me this long to get to this particular film, because it is just as good, straight up.
0: Oh, yeah. No, this this one's brilliant.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much all the context we have. Uh, let's review. So, Annie, I want to hear your thoughts. How do you grade Tokyo Godfathers?
0: <laughs> um, wow, just placing the burden on me here. Um, That's right. You know what? Ducking I, my responsibility. This, this is going to be another A for me. I think this is a really fantastic film. Uh, this movie made me feel things and uh, a sort of mixture of happiness and glee at times and then just real genuine sadness for some of the things that the characters were going through so I think it's a very impactful movie the animation itself the style is really beautiful to me too I think Cone has a way of identifying beauty in groups of people and in spaces that are generally characterized as dirty or messy or not acceptable um And I think that's part of what makes this movie so beautiful. Um, Now, also, there are parts of it where the language that the film is using to talk about some of its characters are not adequate, um, or isn't adequate. And we can talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. But overall, this one's going to be an A for me. I think this is a fabulous movie.
1: Yeah. And for me, this is also... I'm biased, I'm an animator, and Satoshi Kon is one of my favorite directors, so this is just going to be an A-plus movie for me. There are some things that I wish could be handled better, but like I say in a lot of films that we look at, is I think this is a reflective aspect of the film and not a intensive. Intentive? Intensive? Like, Is there a word for that? Intentional? Are you
0: talking about intentionality?
1: Intentional. yeah. Um, And we'll get to that in a bit. Like, There are some things that I wish were different, but it's not necessarily that I wish that the film were better. It's just that the realities we're reflecting and the attitudes and the cultural perceptions and so on and so forth we're not where we are today. And it's something that, like, I wouldn't have had an issue with at all if I had seen this years and years ago. The thing, the thing about this is, while I feel there are maybe some ill-informed, uh, you know, understandings and formulations of these things with Khan in particular in the director's chair i still no never feel like any of these characters are stereotypes and definitely i don't think that there's any malice behind the depiction and that goes a long way towards me forgiving if i i think accepting if not forgiving of the tropes and the kind of cultural language used in this film cuz like intentionality In a lot of ways and in a lot of situations does not matter as much of the act, but in something as warm as this and something like this is a matter of art, I think the intentionality is reflected in the product.
0: Yeah, I do also think it's kind of important for our listeners to know what some of those tropes are. And to be honest, it's real complicated because uh, humans are complicated, But in film, a lot of times what you see um, in terms of representations of gender nonconforming people are the collapsing of sexual orientation and gender identity into one another. Um, And also sometimes performance of gender. So like for instance, I teach a whole section in my class on Harlem drag culture. And one of the things that I see a lot is... People collapsing trans identity, gay identity, and being a drag queen all into the same category. So you'll still hear people using terms like transvestite or trans to talk about drag queens or gay people in general. Um... Which, that's kind of rough, again, because that is collapsing sexual orientation and gender identity and performance into the same category. And those are not necessarily the same things. But we do see that a lot in film. And I do see that a tiny bit in this film, but I I don't know if it's to the extent of equating being gay with being trans, with being a drag queen. It seems to be more like these are overlapping identities in Hannah's life. Um, and, you know, Hana is the gender nonconforming conforming character in this film. And I do have to say, I think there's something path about what this film is doing in terms of talking about gender non-conforming people in mainstream animation and in mainstream film. Because this is the early 2000s. This is 2003. I... There is a whole cinematic history of drag performance in cinema, you know, since the 1920s. But when it comes to talking about gender non-conforming people, that gets a bit more complicated. And I can't think of too many films that actually tackle that outside of, you know, a few indie films as well as documentaries. So for this to be a mainstream animated film that is talking about the issues that Hana faces as a gender non-conforming person, that's a big deal. And I feel like that's worth acknowledging.
1: Absolutely. So that being said, that's uh, something that's more of a deep dive and a deep cut that we will be coming back to. But I feel like that was important to get out there at the front of the episode. So the other thing, so I think we want to go into mechanics now and just talk about like what we really love about this film. And I guess if we have any complaints, but I I personally don't. Nothing that I can think of right now. And I don't really feel like this is the kind of film that I want to just dive for nitpicks on.
0: Yeah, no. I don't want to do that either. <laughs> Partly because I like Satoshi Kon so much because you've introduced, you know, his films to me. But also, you know, I'm not one to shy away from critiquing somebody whose work I love. Um... I don't know I just this movie pulled at my heartstrings so many times like it was up and down it was so sweet and then sometimes so bitter and tragic but the thing that I appreciated most about this movie was its humanity its centeredness on human drama and the way that these characters are as individuals and their choices whether they're good or they're bad I just love that really human and deeply rooted story about them as individuals. Because I think, you know, you and I for the past few weeks have talked about movies that are about fascism and the damage that that leaves in its wake. And we're also living in this weird political moment in which, you know, you have people who are supposedly advocating for other humans, all while grossly disregarding those people's lives. And it was just so lovely to hear a story from someone who truly seems to care about these characters, who wants them to get to this point in the end where they are they are okay. And that was just a joy for me.
1: Um, Because, like, it's interesting. Um, very much, I think, the tone of this film is kind of interesting because it's dealing with people with... Like, you know, you could probably say one of the most unfortunate and difficult circumstances, you know, being homeless. And yet, it's very much about them supporting each other. It's very much about family and, you know, love and, like, chosen versus birth family. It's these people who are outsiders. It is these outsiders who are finding their own way in the world. So... Typically, it's not really, I think, about their hardship, even though their hardship does inform their characters and where they are and the context in which they exist. But this film is not about homeless people and how they're homeless. This is a movie that has homeless people. It stars homeless people. Well, not stars. You know what I mean. (laughs) It has characters who are homeless, but it is not about, I think, homelessness.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense to me too. I was just thinking about that, you know, like, is this movie about homelessness per se? I think it partly is because of the character's status, you know, and you use the term outsider, I think that's really apt here, as well as the term outcast, because they are literally cast out of the center and into the margins. Um, At least two of the characters, you know, are, had lives previous to this movie, and they through choices of their own and some things that are outside of their control end up pushed out of that. And, you know, I think this film could have gone that sort of, like, Frank Capra-esque, like, you just gotta bootstrap it and you can pull yourself out of homelessness, but it doesn't do that. It's presenting homeless people as people, as human beings with these longer stories that explained to us how they ended up in this situation and also what their lives are like. Like I was thinking too about, you know, Gin doesn't smell so good when he's on the train and people are reacting to him. And I think it's Hana who asked him, it's either Hana or Miyuki who asked him, you know, like, have you bathed? Have you washed your clothes recently? And he was like, no, I haven't been able to do that. And so it's about time. It's about resources. It's about, you know those kinds of things that people aren't thinking about when they talk about homelessness and what it's like to exist without a home, literally. And I appreciate that. And I think
1: this is something, this is a thread, I think, that goes through all of Khan's work, that there is like an almost pathological lack of cynicism. And I say almost pathological, It, it it's a weird phrasing, I think, I think but he refuses. I, he refuses yeah, because
0: to be
1: cynical. We we see so much cynicism. Even cynicism used for hope. Like it's so ingrained into our modes of thinking and perception that I feel like its absence is in and of itself fascinating to me because it is so very, very rare. Um, even things that I think are supposed to be, you know, innocent or pure or, you know, Like, uncomplex or, you know, direct, I feel often end up cynical even just by virtue of the creative project. Like, I think particularly when we're in an area where you're expecting to see a lot of genuine and, you know, heartfelt stuff is like children's material. And a lot of those are, you know, created by adults who feel they need to put a new spin on it to bring it to market and all that. So...
0: Even think about The Incredibles. The recent Incredibles movie was literally a battle between cynical capitalists and basically people who are trying to they're optimists on the other side of the coin so we're constantly dealing with this in even kids cinema really
1: yeah and like i think so to to gush about satoshi con for a minute which i will do (laughs) more of later so i don't feel like i'm really distinguishing this from the rest of the podcast but I feel like he is among the most human of directors. And it's weird because I say that, and in my heart I know it to be true, but I have a very difficult time qualifying what exactly that means.
0: I was just going to ask you what exactly you mean by that, because, you know, we have so many... (sighs) so many stories and tropes and ideas about the director as auteur or the director as innovator the director as male genius and all this stuff um so i guess i'm wondering have you ever seen interviews with satoshi khan before like how does he respond to questions about it
1: i have not and okay. this is this is satoshi khan i think is an interesting figure okay uh, first of all because he produced fantastic work in his time well, but yeah. he died young uh, uh cancer yeah. in his Cancer at 46 in 2010. Very sad. Um, But also, I have never engaged with him outside of the context of his works. And I think for me personally, I like to keep it that way. Okay. Because it has this kind of mythic quality. Yeah. Where he no longer has a living body of work. He is no longer currently living. And he has... An immensely you know prestigious body of work, yeah. but one that is small, contained and easily digestible and he's always concerned with these very like it, this is difficult for me to talk about because it's it's a very like i don't think even emotional subject for me, but it's it deals with i think some very fundamental things about how i think about storytelling and craft and art and film um and he's an animator he's absolutely one of my heroes and the way he plays with space and time is like not as not as present in this film but is just gorgeous and so like in that way of thinking i try i think my best to relate to him through his films okay and in each that. and every one of his films, I find, I think, a very human core where it's about people. And it's it never feels like people, I think, are written for the story, which is a weird way of putting it. Because these are all, like, very complete and beautiful people. like et, Like, even his villains, quote-unquote, are very humanized. Like, I don't feel like he's made a two-dimensional character in his life.
0: <laughs> Probably not. And that's which is
1: ironic. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of where I sit because like it, these, all four of these films are important to me. And Paranoia Agent, his TV show which is supposed to be one of the greats. I've not seen it yet. I will see it. It's on my list. Don't at me. But like it just hits me. Because one of the things I think that's important about Satoshi Kon is he makes animated films. And a lot of the films he's made I think except for Paprika which is this wild and beautiful and colorful ride every other film of his could be done in live action. But they are not. And so there is something I say about animation. In animation Every image is constructed. If you're acting in, if you're working in film, perhaps, oh, you hire Owen Wilson, but he's got a broken nose. And that's something that becomes part of the character. It's like, you don't think about it, but you're looking at him and you're thinking, ah, maybe this guy got into a lot of fights or he played sports when he was a kid. You know, it's this subtle tapestry of reality that you are weaving a quilt from and you cannot help but take patches of it. Whereas in a constructed image, you choose every element. And Satoshi Kon fills that canvas. It's a thing of beauty, and it's something that I am inspired by on a very profound level. So, it, does that summarize why I think his films are very human for you, Annie? <laughs> I, I I'm think struggling. so.
0: I think so. I just think it's, it's just kind of nice... To have someone like that that you look up to and who you see all these wonderful things coming from. You know, like I have directors like that as well, like Emmerich Powell and Michael Pressburger, who, you know, like I I don't know much about their careers. I just know a lot about their films because their films made me love film. So I totally, totally get that. Yeah.
1: Like, let's talk about some images because I think that's where I started. And there are some absolutely lovely. Compositions. Um, first of all, I think and this is kind of a general note for I think Satoshi Khan. And I don't have it here specifically on like IMDB specifically or anything, because the way that um animation direction is actually okay, yeah, no, Satoshi Khan is the character designer. I have it listed here. The way it's presented on IMDB is strange. Uh, but his character designs are fantastic. His faces are fantastic. There are so many close-ups of faces. Like, here's one thing. I actually, this is, I think, an anime film. That I think is a technically accurate way to describe this film. But I'm not sure if it's artistically accurate because, yes, there are some things that draw from it. But it is so far, I think, outside of the lexicon of what we perceive to be the kind of the cultural monolith of anime.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um,
1: With, I think, exceptions maybe for a couple of his, you know, leading lady uh, designs like uh, Miyuki or, you know, um, Paprika or so on, which somewhat borrow from that but are still naturalistic in a way that a lot of it is not. And just, you can fill an entire screen, you can fill an entire frame with one of his faces and it is a thing of beauty. Even the ugly characters are beautiful. Um, I think a great example was the mafioso who is trapped in his car. I was just going to bring him up. He's fat. <laughs> yeah. He's got these big jowls. And we his first meet him. His face goes
0: red. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We first meet him under his car being slowly crushed. <laughs> and he's red and be- and all the blood is rushing to his head because he's, you know, head downhill. And even in that, there is something beautiful about the way his face is drawn. And it is, I don't know, like, this is a movie that's hard to, like, I have difficulty with Satoshi Kon's films, specifically because <laughs> they are just themselves, they are to me a singular thing, it's, this is Satoshi Kon, this is the quality of Kon. And trying to, like, abstract that and tear it apart is difficult Yeah. For me.
0: A lot of his character designs remind me of the first time that I saw um, Miguel Covarrubias' illustrations. Um, Covarrubias was uh, an illustrator here in the U.S. who would do, like, different facial types. Sometimes it was caricature, sometimes not. Um, But he did a lot of work practicing on, uh, like, looking at facial distortions, like, how people distort their face when they make certain facial expressions and, you know, what that kind of means and... I saw so much of that in this film. There's this just ebullient nature to the way that Cohn captures people's faces and and how they react to things. And he's not afraid of capturing people in a moment where their face is, you know, doesn't look great. Where it's twisted or distorted in some way. And I really like that. I think that adds even more to the the sort of humanist project of this film because it's it's so much about raw human emotion and that even comes through in the visual design.
1: So I have a question for you Annie. Are you familiar with the concept of model in animation?
0: Model? My only real reference to that is through the art historical concept of modeling, like modeling figures. Okay,
1: that's Okay. So in animation Particularly in 2D animation or hand-drawn animation where you are creating each image wholesale as opposed to like 3D CG animation or puppetry where you are manipulating a rig or a puppet that has – is in itself always the character. Um, in 2D animation, you have what's called a model sheet, and these are the drawings that are form the basis or the skeleton of the character. These are your character designs and something is referred to as being on or off model. And when something is on model, that means it is recognizable as the character, it is accurate, and it is aesthetically pleasing or fulfills the aesthetic needs of the uh, model sheet, of the character, of the design. And one thing that you'll notice is, this is something that is a very difficult balance to strike because animation is about things moving, which necessarily means diverging from this idealized static depiction of a character. So when you look at, like, a lot of, like, old Disney stuff, there's a lot of squash and stretch, and there's a lot of, like, this kind of, like, rolling jolly motion to characters. And when you look at a lot of, like, especially commercial products, there is an emphasis on making things stay on model almost at the expense of animation, and particularly with, like, like, you know... Action-adventure stuff and, like, anime. And, like, this This is part of parcel of anime is this idea of you create the model and it needs to be recognizable. I think almost to the point of superseding the need to be uh, functional. And like, because there's so many like animation blogs and tumblers, although I guess those are all going away now, <laughs> uh, of like, you know, just frame, like, here's an in-between, here's a frame of character animation, and it's removed from the context of being in motion and just shown. And it's just like, hey, look at this weird, wacky drawing. And, you know, people lo- point and laugh at that. And so I do think that there is, as an animator, there is this kind of fear of, Squashing and stretching and applying the full principles and weight and tool set of animation to the face. Because I think the face is the most important thing. You can be in a weird pose and if your face looks good, that's the first thing people look at. Because like this drawing that you spend hours of your life on, people are going to look at for, you know, a 24th of a second. So. Wow. I think that is the quality of Kohn's faces is they are willing to distort.
0: He's willing to take risks to show to like push past this model idea that you're talking about, most definitely. And it, it takes them away from just being animated characters and into the realm of being more fleshed out beings, I guess.
1: Yeah. And the other thing I think that is kind of interesting is the model sheets for this, I think, evolve over the course of the film. Um, in particular with Hana.
0: Yeah, you were uh, mentioning that
1: she. What I feel like happens, and I've I've had some time to think about this uh, since I watched this, is I feel like over the at the beginning of the film, it is made abundantly clear that she is quote a transvestite. I think is the kind of formulation of her gender presentation that the film accepts. Right. And so at the beginning, we see the strong jaw, we see the wrinkles, we see this, we have this kind of emphasis on her more mannish features, right? But I think as the film goes on, those are subtly pulled back, and she is, I think, drawn in more simplified and more elegant and graceful ways, up until certain points where it's induced for comedy effect or where she plays into it or so on, but... There is this evolution, I think, over the course of the film where I don't want to say she becomes more feminine, but she becomes more Hana. And uh, Gin, I think, is also lovely. Like, there is a great sadness to him, but he has a very striking and very intense face. And I think a couple of moments that stand out for me in particular... One is, I think, as he's being held back at the party when he sees uh, yep. the mafioso who he owes money to, yeah. is just his absolute fury is mm-hmm. something to behold, really. Um, and another striking moment is when he gets beat up for, I believe it's the photo that he has to yeah. retrieve. Yeah. And you just, I think it's um, Miyuki and Hana are talking about, and Hana's all like, yeah, he better be dead in a ditch or something. And you see yeah. his face just jump into frame. Yeah. Just completely contused Bloodied and bruised and, and battered. And yeah. it's just... St- its I think it's difficult to convey that visceral level of, I think, empathetic pain in animation. Especially not... Like, it's easy to show acts. It's easy to show stimuli and to infer or imply reaction. I think it is much more difficult to show the reaction and to imply the pain.
0: Mm. Oh, I thought that kind of got to one of the things that both you and I were noticing about this movie. Like, this was obviously my first time watching this film, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I found it tremendously emotionally impactful. And there are so many variances in tone in this film, the way that it swings back and forth from this kind of, like, sweet but kind of dark humor to these moments of just intense personal tragedy um and I know that you and I have been talking about it but I was wondering is there like how do you do that in animation because I'm I'm just sort of at a loss for words for how to even talk about it because the physical comedy in this movie is so rich it's so well planned out And those moments of sadness that you're talking about, too, those moments of reaction are also so well fleshed out. And I don't know how you do that.
1: So here's, I think, what's happening here. And, again, I am an animator, but also I'm not Satoshi Kon. But Satoshi Kon likes to play, I think, is Mm -hmm. the best way I can describe what he does. And he plays with different things In different films. In Paprika, he plays with reality. He plays with space. In Millennium Actress, he plays with, I think, uh, personhood and continuity and story. In Perfect Blue, I think he plays with, like, I say reality, but it's a different thing. He plays with, I think, perception and image.
0: Mhm. Yeah.
1: But in this one, I think what he plays with is time. Hmm. Huh. Because I feel like there is a cadence to this film, and I, th- I think, like we we've talked about like really sharply edited, uh, films in the past. And generally, I think what I think fascinates us a lot are these kind of singular cuts. And Khan is, I think, famous for his match cuts, particularly in Paprika, which is like this kind of stream of consciousness of space. But I think what he's doing in this film is he is just kind of taking this rhythm of how we see and perceive and just absolutely pulling every string. Because I think a fantastic moment is when they're in the convenience store and they get kicked out for being homeless and then immediately an ambulance crashes into it. That moment comes on so suddenly That it actually, I think in me at least, elicited this guttural, you know, visceral reaction of fear of a moving vehicle. That kind of sudden trial. It's like if you've ever been to like a driver's ed class and they sit you down, they make you watch the video of all the drunk driving instances, it's that sudden and completely unexpected violence. And that was captured perfectly. And I don't think you can really do that with, I think, some of the general rules of what you want to do is – like, if you're looking at, like, films with these impactful, like, car crashes and stuff, you have to have anticipation. You have to build up to it. You have to foreshadow it. And, like, you know, you look at, like, these famous, like... Look at, for example, I think... Um, what was it? what was the... Um, look at Mission Impossible, the latest one with the uh, car underwater. It's, like, the slow motion of the car, the armored truck swirling underwater, and the way... Like, I think actually that takes away from the sense of violence and chaos of it, and it orders it for the audience. It presents us into this way that's very sterilized. And so what Khan does, I feel, is he takes these different emotional contexts and these different, I think, rhythms of film. And he interweaves them in a tapestry. And that's like the most cliched metaphor. <laughs> but I think it's the only one that's but apt for this. Accurate. because it's accurate. Yeah. It's difficult to describe this film in any other way. And sure, I think I could, if I watched this film, you know, like 20 times and made notes and looked at the editing, is the, you know, I could have, I think, more accurate verbs to describe what he's doing. But I think as a general overview, this kind of works for me. Especially because I think compared to some of his other work, this one feels very I think breathy. Like it breathes long sighs. So I think when you have these like kind of mellow, for example I think a great moment is the kind of homeless shelter they not the sh- the cardboard box the homeless encampment encampments the word I'm looking for. Um when they're like okay, you know what? No, fine, go get some milk. They're they're settling things up, they're setting lights and there is this just very calm, serene kind of golden glow to it those shots are very slow and very not methodical but languid i think
0: i yeah languid is a great way to describe those moments because it is you're right it the play that's going on in this film is about time it's about these different speeds at which um the world is kind of moving around them versus how they're moving sometimes they're moving at the same speed as <laughs> the world around them sometimes too fast Uh, But I think also in that moment, like that is the speed of family time, right? Like, yeah, because when we talk about family, we talk about slowing down. We talk about disconnecting and all that stuff. But here and I think
1: like a good point of contrast, for example, would be the kind of frenetic chase uh, leading up to pulling the baby off the roof. Yeah, Um, because first of all, that has the rhythm of like a Jackie Chan movie almost grabbing the bike, people moving in and out of frame, yeah. uh shouting things, communicating things in a very specific way of like this comedic timing. But then also you look at the roof itself and that is just breathless. The cuts I think aren't that particularly fast, but the amount of motion and the way that the scene behaves is breathless. Yeah. And I think that is ultimately the metaphor, I think, that most suits what this film does, is this film is playing with our breath because we breathe in different rhythms. And sometimes we're breathing in ways that make us laugh, and sometimes we're breathing in ways that make us horrified, and sometimes we're breathing in ways that relax us. Okay, cool. So we've got time, breath. Um, I think it's fair to say that I personally think Satoshi Kon was a wizard.
0: I mean, basically, right? Like... How many of his works have you introduced me to since we've been on the podcast? I feel like there's been a couple. Uh,
1: we've watched two. We've watched Perfect Blue and we've watched uh, this. And, and we've I also still talked need to make about you... Paprika. We have talked about... Have you seen Paprika yet?
0: Uh, I think I watched a couple clips of it after you recommended it because I was just so curious. Like This is the first time where I felt a real connection to a director's work, probably since my childhood. Um, And that's really kind of saying something... <laughs> So but yeah no I I totally understand why you're just completely geeking out about this guy like the stuff that he's doing is just it's amazing.
1: Yeah. I was
0: wondering too sorry um there seem to be two worlds that are kind of not necessarily in competition but in orbit of one another and maybe even saying two worlds is too few, maybe two or three. You've got like the world of um homeless people, you have the world of business people, the world of criminals, and all of those things are sort of in orbit of one another. Sometimes they touch, um and sometimes they move past each other. But I, I'm not I don't sure know. do you see worlds this as being is being the
1: right two worlds? Word there. Okay. Um the way I think that I kind of see this is you have these different layers or strata of society, okay. yeah, I think okay, uh, because particularly you have our main characters are Tokyo Godfathers, if you would, yeah, uh, they live in kind of the underbelly, they are the the unwanted, the unloved, the undesirables yeah. of society, and they move among you know in its underbelly, sort yeah. Of but then you also have the mafia who mm-hmm. are – they are criminals, but they are also decadent and uh, – they're decadent. They are avaricious, but they are also mm-hmm. cheerful and boastful and fun yeah. and simplistic in a way. They live in a world that – because I think they have this uh, fundamental paradox of morality, they, that yeah. fundamental compromise – is their world is, in a way, very simple. They don't have to deal with questions of morality because it is already, I think, assumed that they've done something wrong. So they are allowed, I think, to be cheerful and friendly in this way that is not allowed for other people. Uh, Then you also have, I think, this kind of tragedy of the personal... Tragedy of the family, I think is what I would call it. Because I think you actually find almost all of the conflict exist within family units, and especially in Japan and in Tokyo, these family units exist in very small and constrained spaces. Uh, So, for example, the family that lost the baby, their house burned down, and that space is something that these three characters enter and almost to a degree violate. Yeah. Um, Whereas you see Sachiko's husband... Stick his head out of their apartment and call up to her on the building. He is within their space, and her actions come back to him through the TV. And then he has to reach across space into society to pull her back because she's in this dark place. She is like at the fringes. She's on bridges. She's on rooftops. She is
0: she's in an in the dark space. Yeah, yeah.
1: She's she's outside of society. Like I think layers of society is the I best think that way. Better, yeah. To describe this. And also, I think what. Okay, so I'm gonna take this metaphor, I think, way more literal and way more specific than I think I necessarily want to, but it kind of works in this, like, really cheesy way. Because one thing is, our three characters here, they are here in the, I guess you could call it the bottommost layer of society, right? They have all arrived here from other places. Uh, Miku comes from a good family life, from police and family. She seemed to be somewhat privileged. Um, You know, Gin was a family man, and uh, Hana had, like, this what seemed to be this satisfying romantic personal relationship. Like, they all came from their own spaces, their own layers of society. And they are now here. And I think what we see coming out of each of them is the hole that they left in the places they once were. Yup. The the damage they caused or the damage that was inflicted to and from them on their way down. Because you see, like, for example, I think with the, um, with the drag bar where Hana used to work, there is a definite element of sadness and it's calling, I think, some very specific things, um, you know, Uh, The AIDS panic of the 80s, for example, is definitely there. There's this sense of solidarity and, like, tragedy just on the wind.
0: But not only that, um, you know, for any of our listeners who may have seen movies like Paris is Burning or Kiki um, or Hell, even Tu Wong Fu also contains storylines about this. You understand why so much of the story in Tokyo Godfathers is about getting to choose your own family the stories of a ton of drag queens from super famous drag houses like House of La Beja, um, their stories are permeated with this deeply tragic family drama in which they are rejected by their own biological family members, and they're thrown out. Like, a lot of Um, queer youth who are trying to do drag or who are on the ballroom scene have been kicked out of their houses by their family members and they're living as homeless kids now. Um, And so I think that also haunts that space much as it does the story. And that's part of the reason why there is such an emphasis in the narrative on the idea of choosing your own family, of being able to foster connections with people who see your pain and acknowledge it and also, you know, like are willing to be present with you.
1: Yeah, I think um, for me, uh, one thing I think that is kind of, <clears> hmm, <throat> how, how to say this? Um, I think because one thing you also did say, though, is that there are different worlds and i actually also think that's an issue okay because uh and this is something i see this is something i think about a lot i think in storytelling is the difference between uh literal truth and allegory because i do think that there is kind of a sliding scale that most stories exist kind of blurrily on i don't think any story is purely allegorical or any story is purely literal Stories exist in the telling. And so, in particular, I think there are periods in this film where it dips very much into the allegorical, despite this being, I think, probably Satoshi Kon's most grounded film. Um I can you know, Paprika, see that. It deals with literal dream machines and entering it and, like, these crazy things happening. Perfect Blue deals with, like, this idea of like an alter ego or a formulation of the self becoming real and taking things like and millennium actress is like this kind of meandering journey through this woman's life through the lens of the role she played on in movies so like despite being the most grounded this film still does dip its toe into allegory i think one moment that strikes me out in particular is when jin sees the old man on the street yeah the old man who's dying and For a second, I thought that old man was Jin because he was wearing the same clothes. He had the same bag. And there were details in his character design that distinguish him from Jin besides obviously being an old man with a beard where Jin is not. But also, those details weren't present in his initial presentation. And so I do think for a moment there, he steps into this world where, you know.
0: He he sees his future self. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And you know, where that becomes allegorical and where that is a literal reflection of reality is ambiguous but also important. Um and I think for example, Hana also has a different world where there is this kind of idealized past where I I I don't want to this 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 is complicated. Like this and this is what one thing I love about this film is it's, it, it's very difficult to describe.
0: It's literally hard to verbalize what the film is doing. And I think that's in itself is really impressive. <laughs> yeah. Like you pushed us um, to the limits of language. Thanks.
1: Because I don't think necessarily that her, her world is, I think, an idealized past necessarily. I don't think that's the correct terminology for what I'm trying to say. But it's the, there is a fundamental shift between her past and her present. And despite some things like. She does not feel like she belongs. I think in this world necessarily. Yeah. When she had a place in the old world. Mm-hmm. Um, her presumed partner died. Um, and she feels exiled from the drag house. Even though she is clearly welcomed back.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so there is this sense of exile and of tragedy and loss that kind of permeates, I think, her view of the world. And it's just melancholy and tragic and beautiful also.
0: And Gin kind of has that too, right? The part where he meets his daughter and we, the audience kind of discovers that the story that he told was not what actually happened um it's a story that he's kind of told other people and that sense of self mythologization and that need to you know create a story to help yourself understand what's happened to you or even some of the choices that you've made that's so <laughs> true i guess is the only word i can think to talk about it
1: because here's that's here's what the thing do. i want to say about that though yeah he's is- those stories are still important, especially yeah. for you, because yeah. what we first of all, I think, in a very literal sense, even if we were to assume for a moment that someone is like a pathological liar who what they say has absolutely no bearing on the truth, what we cho- the lies we choose to tell ourselves yeah. reflect how we see the world and our desires and our insecurities and our fears and so on, and so when. We see that he was this, you know, racer and that, you know, he drove and he was – his family was lost to him by circumstances beyond control. We see kind of what he wants to be and what – I think he, for a moment, gets to live up to be in the chase scene. When I yeah. saw that shot where he's riding the bicycle, it had taken me a second to catch up to – wait a second. He's riding the bicycle, just like I said. But then there's that one shot where you see him with that distinct waggle that you see from, like, footage of, like, the Tour de France and so on.
0: Yeah. Where
1: – you know, it, it reminds me very much of a shot from, for example, of Triplets of Bellevue.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh it's just that that distinct waggle and that intensity of his eyes. And in that moment, he is a racer and the story he told becomes true.
0: Yeah, I think so, that's maybe one of the, the the bridges to perfect blue in that sense is about, you know, telling how people tell these stories to themselves to construct their reality, to shape their choices, and to give themselves a sense of purpose or a sense of belonging, or even not belonging. Um, yeah, can we talk about Miyuki there. for a
1: moment? Because I feel like we've kind of been doing her a disservice. We've kind of skipped over. We should. Because I I think uh, Gin and Hana are easier to talk about because they are more apparent in what they do. Um, because specifically regarding this, I think Miyuki is actually in opposition to the other two. Because, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, Annie, but I feel like where Hana and Gin have unfortunate and difficult stories about uh, the reality that they, uh, they live in, And they have these idealized versions of what happened and these idealized versions of themselves that they use to cope with that situation. I think Hana lives in the world of her story when the reality is much lighter. I think that her... Like, let's, let's I think, break this down into two categories. Let's, let me use some words because this is difficult to discuss. I think for each character, there is a reality and there is the story. I think for Hana and for Gin, the reality is difficult and the story is manageable. Or the story is idealized or helpful. I think for Miyuki, the reality is difficult but manageable. And the story is hurtful and painful and i think yeah. she chooses to live in the story
0: yep yeah uh
1: that was that was a lot to put together on the fly but
0: <laughs> no but i i really do think that that's what's going on here like so much of Cohen's work that you know like i've taken a look at and that you've shown me is about this sense of telling tales. It's about narratives and and how those things get made into reality or how we choose to dwell within them or to reject them sometimes. So I, no, I think that's what's going on with Miyuki.
1: Because I I think it's, it's really apparent because I think the other thing we see is we kind of see the resolution of Gin and Hana's stories I think to a degree. They are they kind of continue on into the sunset but they have each other and they reach like this moment of victory and idealization and actualization through the events of this you know christmas night of theirs but um for miyuki we are left with an open ended question at the end of the film is oh dad we don't get to see the end result of that and I think because I, I I struggle to talk about this movie. I struggle a lot to talk
0: about this movie. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> people, but, no, people should see that and people should be able to recognize that there are cases in which this happens. That's fine. Yes. Not everything is easy. Not everything should be.
1: Um, but with regards to Miyuki... Um, her story is much more open-ended and ambiguous, and from what we see, I think she is the one that is continuing to hurt herself and her family, whereas I think Hana and Gin are much later down that road, and they are on the upswing, or they are on the road to forgiveness or reconciliation or whatever you can find. Acceptance, grief, whatever. There's... A lot of different threads to pull on, whereas I think we see this as potentially, but definitely not, I think, definitively (laughs) choice of words, Doc, choice of words, as this is the, I think, the moment of branching where it can get worse or it can get better, and we're never given a promise that it is getting better.
0: Yeah, but also, so when authors include that kind of a unresolved ending in a story, that's also about asking the audience what they think is going to happen. That's about choice. That's about which kind of narrative do you choose for yourself here, right? Is it a narrative in which she continues to hurt herself for a long time is it one in which she makes up with her family and finds community again? Like, which one is it? And I mean, that was also partly why I used the the term that Cohn chooses to be optimistic throughout this film. Like, he's so deliberate with this. There are so many coincidences that bring these people not only together, but that help them along. Everything from, you know, that chance meeting with the the mafia guy at the beginning to that gentle breeze that brings hana safely down from the roof um and so i think he's asking the audience a question uh, what story do you choose here which path do you take
1: yeah which is i think kind of at odds with how we talk about a lot of films these days and i think uh-huh. not necessarily with you and i but i think in popular discourse there is this obsession and i've i've actually been having some conversations this week and I think I come to the conclusion that I hate the very idea of canonity or canonicity, uh, I think it's canonicity.
0: The word. Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah, canon on that one.
1: This idea of canon establishes <laughs> what did or did not happen. It establishes a factualism to stories. And And it
0: has the power to tell audiences when they are right and when they are wrong. And that, there's questions there about who gets to determine that that canonicity has some very unsatisfying answers to for me at least.
1: And I think as, and this is going to, I think probably dip into this kind of commercialized capitalistic consumption of media is (laughs) we're conditioned just a bit is we are conditioned to be rewarded by indulging in and consuming and engaging with media. So in a way, Canon in that sphere is a, you know, kind of capitalist incentive, is to understand, to accept, and to internalize the canon. Is You see so many of these, like, Facebook groups and Twitter bosses, like, here's 107 Marvel facts. Did you know that Wolverine was once incinerated all the way down to his skeleton and regenerate from a single brain cell? And it's like, I guess that's canon, but who gives a shit? It doesn't matter because it's a story written on a page. It's not significant that that happened because someone made it happen. And so like y- when when you take storytelling and you try to reduce it to this kind of fact totemic,
0: yeah, bullshit. Yep.
1: <laughs> it, it it kind of rips apart the very principles that make stories work is that they are not real. When you say Superman couldn't beat Goku. Maybe you're right, but you're taking away the very reason you would ever want to see Superman fight Goku.
0: And some to find amazing out. fan fiction.
1: <laughs> yeah, besides, they'd fuck. Come on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, isn't this kind of the same conversation that we had surrounding The Last Jedi? That there's yeah. this idea that, you know, cannons are you're right. I mean, to point to the idea of the canon as ultimately the sort of like capitalist endeavor, I think is fair. Canons are also partisan, they favor one particular side of an issue or story and not another. And so offering the audience a chance to choose where the story goes later on in their mind is not only asking them to make a choice about, you know, like optimism or pessimism, it's about inviting the audience to imagine. Then at that point, the story kind of becomes weirdly collaborative at the ending if you're asking an audience to do this. And I think that's also what I love about that device.
1: Yeah, in a weird way, I feel like Khan's films don't exist without their audience. Um, whereas I think something like the Marvel films are complete before they are shown to the audience. Um, um
0: that's that's a bit more debatable. Um, are you saying that he's playing, that Cone is playing to a specific audience or like a specific public? Is that what you mean? Whereas I think like
1: what Marvel I'm films saying are tested is, and stuff? I think what I'm saying is when Marvel delivers a film, it is a discrete product. Whereas when you look at these films, I think a necessary component to understanding them is the person watching them is y- you are a part of this machine and there are these ambiguities and these emotions and these feelings and this visual language that in many ways i think can be very vague but can also be extremely specific but in like these ways that are very difficult to write about or verbalize or you know abstract so it's very experiential it's very involved and it commands, I think, a level of – I think levels is maybe the wrong word, but a type of engagement that is very, like, abstract and, I think, against the grain of how we consider things in these very logical terms.
0: Mm, okay. Okay, I can kind of – I think I can kind of see what you're saying is that they're appealing to different publics in a way because all films are dependent upon audience, right? Yeah, You can't have a thing being looked at without the person looking at it. You just can't. Um, But it depends on their particular perspective, their positionality, and and how they consume things or look at things. And so, yeah, I do think they're appealing to different groups of people um, versus... I mean I think we can call some of the Marvel movies manufactured although arguably that underplays some of what they're doing but but I see what you're saying I think
1: I mean and with this specific comparison uh one thing I kind of want to invoke early I think touch on is this idea that with this idea of canon when you have a a canon when you have this factual list of what happens. Um, You are favor, you are, I think in a way, rejecting death of the author. You are bringing him back and you are declaring him and you're giving him authority over you.
0: Oh, no, it's 100% an affirmation of the idea of the author as genius, right? Yes. So it's fully buying into that. It's fully buying into the politics of the canon. And it's also fully buying into the politics of exclusion that canons espouse, right? This is yeah. why people get into really huge fights about why we can't have black or female Sith Lords, right? Mm. <laughs> because the camera Maybe not the specific example you want to bring
1: stuff. up, but sure. I'm 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 sure we've had these conversations. Um because the, the yeah. I think those specific conversations will be just absolutely drenched in dog whistling. And so it's difficult to say that direct conversation has existed. But
0: well, um, they are, but part of what I'm saying here too is that, you know, because those canons so circumscribe the possibilities for narrative, like, there's a reason why this particular story features a character who, um, you know, is gender non-conforming and also queers some of our ideas about fatherhood because it can do so outside of that sort of prescribed language of the canon.
1: Well, that's actually something I was trying to get to. Okay, Um, (laughs) sorry. Because one of the things I find interesting about this is... Um, So I've known about this movie for many years now. This is, I've watched it for the first time a couple days ago. And it's taken me a long time to do this. But I've I've seen it mentioned many times. It shows up on a lot of lists of films. Um, and one thing that I've noticed actually is, like, I think particularly in this last year, the descriptions of the movie have changed. Because okay. it's always been, you know, three homeless people find a baby and try to return it on Christmas Eve. That's that's the movie. That's an accurate summary of it. But in the past, I've seen vague descriptions of the characters, which have always included Hana as a drag queen.
0: Ah, uh, interesting. In the
1: last year, it's cropped up a couple times, and I've seen it her described as a trans woman. Oh, and so okay. I believe that by rejecting this idea of having a declarative canon. It allow by reject by and by fully killing and stabbing the author to death. Apologies <laughs> to Satoshi Khan. We allow people we allow the audience to own and interpret and make the story alive. Yeah. Because I don't disagree with that interpretation, but I also don't think that it was wrong. Because if you read like the text and you look at the tropes and you kind of try to dissect what Hannah is on screen, she's a drag queen. But if you, I think, look at the character of Hana and, I guess, kind of, like, feel her heart to be, like, really sappy sappic, that is not sap, what, f- f- sappy. about sappy. it. Sappy. 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 To be really sappy, sappy about it. <laughs> 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 to be really sappy about it. Yeah. She's a trans woman. And, you know... Well, and also, un-
0: you know, being a drag queen and being a trans woman, like, those are things that, while there have been conversations about both of those designations a lot of times there's been this weird societal idea that you can't be a trans woman and be a drag queen I know there's been a lot of discussion about that in different drag communities and in different drag visual culture communities just in the past two years because of RuPaul's drag race so yeah yeah.
1: that's that's a whole bag of worms
0: yeah um but but that ability to, you're right, the ability to read those things into the text and to have some, I guess, fluidity to the readings is, is, that's really important, right? Because then people can kind of talk about these characters and find things in common with them. Like that is an act of empathy in a way, is, you know, talking about those sorts of circumstances that already part of
1: our conversations culturally yeah and the the great thing i think about looking at this in the year 2018 is satoshi khan isn't around to to He's like oh no it's just some gay dude in a dress chill you know because and i don't think i don't think that he would say i don't i absolutely don't think that he would say it but when you look at the film um the language and the cultural understanding that's present within um gin calls her you know uh you know the f word he her that she yeah. calls herself a homo but she also uses language you know she always dreamed of giving birth to a baby and so yeah. on is there's so much mixing in there and because we have both those and there's no declarative authorial statement over yeah. which is valid and which is not they are allowed to coexist and mingle and to war with each other and I think ultimately the overall ethos of Satoshi's Khan's film is humanistic and empathetic and empathetic. That I think from a modern standpoint, I can't look at this film and see anything but this acceptance of Hana. Whereas I think to look at this like 10 years ago and say, oh yeah, it's that movie with the drag queen would not be incorrect. But I wouldn't see that as being like at direct odds with my current interpretation of the film.
0: I think also you know there's something to this idea of the right to not be categorized or the right to make art with characters that can't fully be pinned down right um there's something special about that about making something even if people are attempting to do so at the time to apply labels to this character in certain ways i like the idea of the fluidity of it of its mobility um and of its ability to stimulate new conversations about how you represent people who don't conform to these sort of rigid societal ideas of what uh, gender performance should look like, or you know, the performance of sexual orientation. That's good. Like we need more things that do that, that allow, um, that don't allow the audience easy answers, even if some people are seeking those things. Yeah. that's, yeah, that's what I want.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think also, I think the last thing I want to note on, I think, and the note we want to end on is this is a great Christmas movie. Um, it goes into some fairly dark places, but ultimately, I think the message is of hope and of kinship among the dispossessed. And it's kind of interesting that you have this wonderful and I think very pure interpretation of, you know, what you I guess you might call the Christmas spirit through a Japanese film. In particular, you even have Hana singing in English badly, very badly, but wonderfully and beautifully because it's heartfelt and it is triumphant and it is fun. And so, because here's the thing. I think most Christmas movies are garbage. Like, and even among the classics, there's a lot of uh, fables, there's a lot of moralizing or, you know, outright religious propaganda. Like, there's a lot of problems with the idea of the Christmas movie. To which I think is reflected in this idea that we have this popular joke of, uh oh, my favorite Christmas movie is the action movie that takes place on Christmas. You know, I like Die Hard, I like Psycho, you know, I like these movies that are are on Christmas but aren't about Christmas because being about Christmas is almost like the light beer version of being a Christian film sometimes. (laughs) And so it's weird because I feel like this captures what we want Christmas movies to be without, I think, really bringing any of the baggage of being a Christmas movie made in the West to bear.
0: Yeah, and let's be even more explicit about it. The canon of Western, and by Western I mean films made in the United States and in the UK that are about Christmas, um, these films reinforce white cis hetero, patriarchal structures. They reinforce the idea that white people and cis people and hetero people are the dominant members of society and that their stories are the most important stories to tell. This movie is not about that, and I think that's part of what I like about it so much. Um, this movie isn't about acquiring things. It's not about, you know, doing better at your job or having a fling with someone. This is a story that's deeply rooted in the humanity of three people who are marginalized and yet somehow not fully they can't fully be defined by their marginalization they can't be their their characters are just they're too big they're too human um and I I like that because the story is about the right to self-definition and the right to not be labeled by other people and to not be put in a box there's just something beautiful about that story to me
1: absolutely and I think that's I think that's a good note to end on because, like, we have a lot to say about this film, but we also have a lot of difficulty saying it. And I think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, we, we we just went straight into deep dives on this one, and we've still we got more to feelings. talk about. And, we had some like, feelings. it just... I'm sitting here with a smile on my face because I'm thinking about this movie, and I'm thinking about the me things me that too. made me feel and the things that it made me think. And I'm happy to say that, like, I can't... Ivory Tower Academic, this movie. I can't look at I like, it falls <laughs> into this tradition of this, this, and this. It's just this is Tokyo Godfathers. This is the movie. I yeah. don't think I can describe this movie to you more than I can say, please just go I'll see watch it, it because <laughs> it is lovely and I want to share this film, not this not an aspect of this film, not a frame or a scene or a line. Or critique. I want to share yeah. this experience. Yeah. And it's positively lovely. Rest in peace, Satoshi Khan. That's that's my letter. That's my dear director.
0: Okay. Um Dear Satoshi Kon, first of all, thank you for this movie. This is beautiful, and I hope that some of our listeners are able to find it online. Um The Amazon copy that is available on Prime does not have actual English subtitles on it, or at least they were not working when I tried it. So if you're able to find the yes, for some reason they were not working. So I watched this in Spanish, um, which was fine. But if you're able to find an English dubbed version or an English sub version, please go and watch that. If you watch one Christmas film this season, please watch this one. Um, it's so so worth your time
1: this has been the movie morgue your premier movie autopsy podcast I've been your host Sylvia Emery you guys can follow us on twitter at movie morgue cast you can follow me on twitter and on twitch.tv at uh, double doc md Annie where can people find you
0: people can always find me on twitter I'm at lights and music that's lights e n music where i post pictures of my dog and circulate academic articles that i like and yeah come visit
1: yeah our intro music as always is trouble by ipsofactopus you can find a link to the t- to the ep of the same title down below in the show notes and remember if you guys want to support us uh, review us on itunes keep listening tell your friends join our discord join our facebook group Continue the discussions and, like, keep it because this is one thing that happens a lot is we're going to finish this recording and I'm going to talk to Annie and we're going to go, <laughs> oh, we didn't talk about the uh, Latin American couple and the things about motherhood. Yeah, then. like, yeah, they're just going to keep going that we, we miss so much because if we talked about everything we want to talk about, first of all, we'd have to record an entire week of conversations uh-huh. and the podcast would be five <laughs> hours long and you guys would all hate us. So, yeah, but tell your friends. And uh, if you want to keep us in uh, servers and celluloid, uh, maybe consider our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash Uh, You know, keeps the lights on, keeps us hosted on uh, Simplecast, and uh, keeps us being able to go see movies, even though this one isn't in the theaters, but a couple of them we're checking out this month will be. So thank you guys. But more than anything, thank you guys so much. We enjoy doing this. We enjoy sharing these thoughts with you. And we hope that it brings something into your life because... We enjoy it. It's it, it makes us happy. Yeah. Have fits. a merry Christmas. Happy
0: Christmas, everyone.
1: Or happy um, holidays. Oh no, war on Christmas. Blah blah blah. No, Play us no. out, Annie, please, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.